This evening we conclude what we began looking at this morning from James chapter 5. James chapter 5, found on page 1291 in your pew Bibles. We conclude this examination of the coming of Christ and what that means to our lives. We've been looking at it in detail. I think it's important for us to live this way and Sometimes it takes many weeks of focusing on a truth to have it really sink in, to understand what God's Word is saying and how we are to live before Him. And tonight we will be reading verses 7 through 12, focusing on verses 10 through 12. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, open your Word to us this evening, and Holy Spirit, may you convict us of its truth and change our lives. Lord Jesus, may we see how you are so present in a text that promises not only your coming, but calls us to live in a way that we can now live in light of what you've gained for us through your suffering. We pray that you would impress upon us especially what we see here in this text of patience and suffering and a love of the Lord's purposes. We ask this in his name. Amen. James 5, beginning verse 7, focusing on verses 10 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Sends the reading of God's word. People of God, there is a power, a strength to be gained from looking at examples. To be looking at the saints who have gone before us and have stood firm in their faith. You may have found this as you've read something like a biography of a great Christian someone who was respected, and generally speaking, those biographies that bear the most weight, that change your life, that sort of jolt you into a, a energy for the gospel are those of written about people who suffered greatly in their life. And it was through those sufferings that you see so much to be learned, so much wisdom to take. You're better equipped to handle various situations you may face in your own life because you've seen how saints who have gone before you have handled it, and not just any saints, but those who are exemplary in their faith. And so examining a certain group of people, the saints who have gone before, gives to us strength, and that's what James is doing here. Very clearly in verse 10, he says what he's doing. He says, as an example, let's look at the prophets. As an example to strengthen you, as an example to give you good courage and hope. And that's exactly what we desire. We desire to be patient, and and here the patience that James is talking about is expressed in a steadfastness, in a firmness. 
Well, how do you gain that? Well, a good place to start is to look at what God has done in the lives of others. And here we look at the prophets. There's another reason it's helpful to do this. God is painting a marvelous work through life, through all that happens. If you conceive of history as this grand portrait, this grand depiction, as God is like this artist painting a masterpiece... We can't see the picture. We can't see it fully. Time has not finished, nor do we have the capacity to see all that he's doing. But looking at the completion of someone's life allows us to see a rather small slice that is completed. To see at least a a small portion of his picture and to see what his, his design was in it, what he's doing in it, and that's exactly what happens with the prophets. This isn't the first time and this isn't the only time God's word does this and provide us with examples to follow. Hebrews 11 is full of such examples in the faith and those who expressed faith. Hebrews 12 verse 1 even says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those verses from Hebrews chapter 12 fit so well into what James is trying to say to his audience in his own day. I believe you could basically use that as the application and even the explanation of what James is getting at. Both places in Scripture are getting at the same thing. Look to your forerunners, look to the cloud of witnesses and the saints, but especially Christ, and providing that example who for the the endurance that he ran, he ran this race set before him, went going through difficulty, going through trial with great patience and steadfastness and endurance, and so gained the, the, the seat of heaven, the throne. This is what Jesus gained. He is that prime example, but James is using others in the world as examples. So again, as we are trying to follow the, the flow of thought through these verses, one, verses 1 through 12 can be summarized with, because of the Lord's coming, we ought to be patient. But the theme of these verses, verses 10 through 12, is that God's purpose for suffering, as seen in the prophets produces patience in our own suffering. We're trying to gain strength through the examples he sets before us. And that's our first point, examples to strengthen patience and suffering. Verse 10 presents the first example, the suffering and patience of the, of the prophets. He says, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered those blessed who remain steadfast. That's an important beginning to what he's saying. We consider those ones, the ones who suffer. The ones we're looking at, whose lives were very difficult, we considered them blessed. We consider their lives worthwhile. We gain strength from them, and we see the purpose of what the Lord was doing in them. And you see what James is saying? He's saying if that's true of them, it's true of us. The first verses, and what we looked at this morning, was sort of that call to action, a firmer call to action. This is more the balm that James is providing. This is more the compassion. This is more the saying, hey, you're supposed to be patient. And as, as we ended this morning, Christ's hand is, is literally on the doorknob. His presence is there. Live like it, right? That's how we ended. That's the call. But here he's saying, it is difficult. And gain strength through these examples 
and understand what the Lord is doing. It's that compassionate approach that he's saying now, right after calling them, even commanding them to obey and be patient. And so he looks at the prophets. The prophets are a who's who of suffering. You can't look at a prophet and find a life and say, I would like that life. Who would want to exchange your life with any of the prophets? What they were called to endure... What they went through, we can just look at a a, a brief kind of almost random picking of them. You think of Elijah, one of the most well-known prophets of all. He spent a long time in the wilderness in isolation and being alone after delivering the word that it would not rain for these years. He was set apart, taken to a barren land, and yes, the Lord provided for him with ravens and a brook, and we think, oh, that would be cool to experience, but who would want to live that way? Who would want to live in the desert? And wait for birds to bring you food, and you have no one around you. That's just the the beginning of Elijah's sufferings. Then he's brought back into the picture, and he comes to the widow. Right? He comes to the widow, and through his hand, a miraculous thing is done, and he provides food, and you think, that's pretty amazing. And it is, but then what happens? Her son dies, and there's despair. And then, oh, Elijah raises him from the dead. What an amazing work it is. Then you continue his, his journey, his timeline. He goes before Ahab, wins a tremendous victory for the Lord at Mount Carmel. But then what happens immediately following that? It doesn't seem as if the people respond and Elijah's in despair. He's in such a depressed state as he flees into the wilderness that he wants to have his life taken from him. He tells the Lord, take it away. He's in deep despair as Jezebel is seeking his own life. That's Elijah. That's what he experienced. Arguably one who the Lord did more marvelous works through than than almost any other in the Old Testament. And his life was characterized by distress, by suffering, where he needed to be steadfast. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was hunted by the men of his hometown, specifically because they they wanted to stop him from speaking the Lord's words. The people he had grown up with, the men from his own town, wanted to murder him because he was speaking the Lord's words. What suffering? What suffering this man endured having to be a mouthpiece of coming judgment, of experiencing the the same thing that had fallen on the people. Look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel was taken and ripped from his homeland, brought into exile. He suffered many things and One thing to draw attention to is he was called to suffer the loss of his wife as the setting in which he would deliver his message. Picturing what was happening to Jerusalem and to the people of God in their own loss, his wife was taken from him for that very purpose. In his role as a prophet, his role as a prophet didn't take him from the trial. It threw him right into it. Take Daniel. Ripped from his home, again, just like Ezekiel, deported. And then you think, yeah, but he had a pretty good life. He was an advisor to the king. He was well thought of. Well, he was thrown in a lion's den because he would not give up prayer. And the reason's important. Why was the suffering? Why the trial? He would not give up prayer. He would not worship the the false image. He would not worship Nebuchadnezzar. And he was thrown into the lion's den because of that. Now, the Lord preserved his life. But you see the the suffering that he endured. Hosea was married to an unfaithful wife. 
just for the purpose of depicting the unfaithfulness of the people of God, his role as a prophet. The list goes on and on. It's, it's an endless list as far as the prophets are concerned of those who suffered for the sake of God's word. And they endured, and as James says, and we count them blessed. This is just like reading a biography of a faithful saint, a faithful man, a faithful woman, and gaining strength from that and saying, they endured, so can I. They held firm to the faith, so must I. We stand in the same way, and and this puts a, a proper focus on the very suffering that we are called to endure patiently. We gain strength to see that others have done it before us. We, can, we even gain strength as when James is doing, he's comparing us to the prophets. Isn't that amazing? He's comparing you, you and me, to the prophets. He's saying, just as the prophets, so with you. Follow their example. We're in that same, that same boat. But what a, what a company to be numbered with. Because we unduly give these sinful men praise, but we see what the Lord did through them, and we respect them appropriately so for what they did. There's our example. And I would say it to all of us, seek to find strength in their example. Read their lives and see what God was doing through them and gain strength yourself. James says, we consider them blessed to remain steadfast, and do we? So what that means is, you see, there's a conclusion. If we say, yes, they were blessed in what the Lord caused them to endure and go through, if that's true, it means the very sufferings we go through are blessed as well. There is no other conclusion. If the prophets were blessed through their suffering, and we count them blessed through what they endured, what we endure for Christ is the same thing and is to be seen in that way as a blessing. That gives us strength, that gives us patience. But you see where he then lands. This is his prime example, Job. The story of Job is the the example of a suffering servant in the Old Testament. He is the one who was brought into a trial, and he is the one who is placed as the example who suffered the greatest in the Old Testament. Everything was taken from him. He lost it all. Satan directly attacked him. His health was taken away. His friends turned on him. I hope you see a lot of connections to someone else in this. Verse 10, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job is that Old Testament example. And the sole purpose, make sure you get this, the sole purpose for Job's suffering was because he was the most righteous man. When you read the book of Job, the reason that he is placed by God before Satan, selected by God and placed in a trial unknown to that time, the greatest trial the Old Testament has to offer was because he was the most righteous man on the earth. No, not perfect but in this way a, a, prefigure, a prefigurer of Christ, who himself was selected, if we use that terminology, to be the suffering servant, to suffer for the sake of the people. Well, that's why Job was brought into this. 
You see, so often, as the examples of the prophets and the example of Job show, it is their faithfulness to God and his word that caused them to have to endure great pain. Then you see what he says. We see the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Why would you use those words in the same sentence with Job? Why, why would he be an example to use and end that with you? Do you see the purpose of the Lord in Job? His compassion, his mercy? Well, the reason you see it is because Job is that, that wonderful depiction of suffering for God, but also blessing at the end. The blessing that Job receives, he receives double of all that he lost, and that's significant. It's showing that there is an end-time view here, that for the suffering of the saints, for the suffering of the righteous one to endure and to be tempted by the devil and stand firm and cling to the Lord, there's blessing. And in fact, through it, through the difficulty, through the trial, the Lord is compassionate and merciful on his people, and that's true of every one of the prophets, all those that I mentioned I'll just take Elijah as an example. When he was so depressed and so distraught, and he goes to the mountain of the Lord and meets with God, what does the Lord do? He commissions him again. He sends him out. He speaks to him. And Elijah goes and does, continues to work for the Lord in great ways and actually sees a revival in the land of, in the land of Israel. That's what happens to Elijah. Now, does that mean we will always see the one-to-one correspondence on this earth of the blessings because we endured them? No, that's not the point. The point is that there will be. The point is that the Lord does not leave you alone in it. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, and he shows that even in the trial, even in the suffering See, Job is a great example because we also see that Job was not a perfect man, but you know what's highlighted is is his righteousness. Job goes too far. Job, at times, in his grief and being distraught, he questions and he wonders, Lord, why? Why am I enduring this? And as his friends are telling him, it's because you've sinned, Job, and we know that's not the reason. We know it's actually the, the complete opposite. It's that he was so righteous that the Lord took him as his champion and said, Satan, go after him. You will not beat him down. You will not destroy him. He will cling and he will stand firm. The compassion and mercy of the Lord to Job. Yes, he would endure suffering, but look what the Lord accomplished through him. The Lord knows what he's doing with us. The Lord knows what he's doing with his suffering servants. We see that great example of Job who wrestled, who struggled, but clung. And the righteousness of Job is never questioned in the book, even when God comes and rebukes Job. And says, who is this that that says these words to me? Where were you when I made the earth? And that that great section of scripture where you see the, the undimmed, as it were, power of the Lord and saying, this is what I am. This is the wisdom I have. And you have none in comparison. So yes, he corrects Job in his, his, his wavering from the exact standard and truth. But he never condemns him. And always affirms his righteousness, even at the end of the book, where Job must intercede for his friends so the Lord would forgive them. The righteous sufferer. What is James doing here? James wants us to endure and stand so that when the dust settles, we are still standing. 
that we are still standing. And that's what's true of the prophets, that's what's true of Job, and it's because it's what's true of Christ. As I already said, Job merely depicts what Christ would do in that perfect way. And James, by using these examples as an excluding Christ, the prophets, Job, all of them were were in their own way revealing Christ themselves. Christ is the prophet who who was sought to be put to death by his hometown. Christ is the one who did not receive any any place to lay his head. He was the one suffered. He was the one who went in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. He was the one who endured all and gained the crown. He's the prime example. We look to him and we look to the saints who have gone before. But what I really want us to see is how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That word in verse 11, compassionate, is better translated tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. It's affection and love that comes from the deepest of emotions. It comes from the very gut. A tender-hearted compassion, a deep-rooted love and mercy. It's not as if God is happy to call his saints, to call his children, to so endure the pain. Rather, it's to show them compassion and mercy through it, for it is all for their good. It is all in his plan. Kelvin says about this verse, Hope directs us only to the end. God will then show himself very merciful, however rigid and severe he may seem to be while afflicting us. That's why Job is a great example. Job was thinking, the Lord, you're rigid, you're afflicting. This is so hard, this is so difficult, and why? I was obedient to you, I was faithful. And at the end of the book, he receives back so much, and he's blessed, never knowing, at least, at least the book doesn't reveal that he ever knew He was a prime example of a righteous man. He would live on in the annals of the the, the God's word itself, and we would know Job and his suffering, and we would gain strength from his suffering. Mercy of the Lord, even Job. This is the example of the prophets, what we are to gain from them, and the compassion and mercy of the Lord through it. Now, if you would look at your text in James... You see verse 12. Verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, if you're following the the trail of thought through this text, this might seem rather strangely positioned. Why this? So he's talking about the coming of the Lord, that the Lord is near, that we are to be patient. He gives us examples of of the faithfulness of the prophets, so we endure, and then goes into oaths. What's going on here? I wanted to look at this and deal with this verse in in a way to look at the interpretive options so that we can learn how to, to read such a text and work through it. What is this meaning? How do we interpret it? How does it best fit in? Well, verse 12 presents a decision that needs to be made. Does verse 12 belong with the preceding verses, first of all? Is it connected to verses 1 through 11 and part of that train of thought, part of that segment as a contained unit, or does it belong on its own? 
In other words, is what James actually saying here, and above all, is he transitioning? Is he, is he saying, okay, now we're on a new topic, and so we've left the idea of Christ's coming and patience, and now we've moved to oaths as a separate thing. That's, that's one theory. That's not the one I'm going to present here tonight. I would present here tonight that it is meant to stay with these preceding verses, but that needs to be explained. Why would he say it in this way? I think the best way to start getting at it is using the illustration we did this morning. Remember, this morning we talked about Christ at the door, his nearness, his imminence, his his standing there ready to enter. And then it says in that verse that he's the judge. It brings before us judgmental imagery that he is also coming as that judge. If he is there and his nearness is presented to us as, as the judge who stands at the door, then it would make sense for James to then tell his people... That in all of these things, in all of your patience, in all of your cross-bearing, make sure that you do not present false oaths. Make sure that you do not swear wrongly. Make sure that you are faithful even in these words that you say. As you're awaiting the judge at the door, ready to turn that doorknob, if you were to be there swearing falsely to others, and in the process blaspheming his name, and knowing that the judge is there for the judge to enter while you blaspheme his name in these oaths, you can see the problem with that. You can see what James is doing. And this was apparently a rampant problem at the time for the Jews, as they would swear these oaths falsely. They would, in essence, say that they were doing this. They would swear by something that they weren't truly holding to. And then what was meant as as an assurance of their word was actually used as an escape route away. And thus they would bring defamation. They would bring dishonor and blaspheme the name of God as they were not keeping their oaths. And James is then saying, in your patience, in your cross-bearing, what you're doing here, the judge is coming, and so stand firm. This final conclusion is related to the nearness of God. You can see this example in Scripture. You can think of Peter. Remember Peter when he was thrown into the fire, right? When Christ was taken and was being prosecuted and he snuck in. And then the the servant girl sees him and says, weren't you one of them? And he denies it and he says, no. And what actually Scripture says in Matthew 26, 74, he begins to call down curses and to swear. You see what he was doing when when the pressure was put to him, he didn't remain steadfast. He didn't endure and and give that way of patience. He didn't live in that way, but rather turn to oaths to, to protect himself. That's just an example of how this could happen. And how so connected oaths and swearing could be to the the idea of the, the danger, the trial, what we're enduring. So those are the options. I, again, argue that verse 12 goes with this text. However, if it's not the case, we can still look at what this verse is meaning. We can still see what he's saying about oaths. Verse 12 talks about these oaths. And there are many similarities between what James says here and what Christ says in his own tackling of these oaths. Jesus, when he spoke against them was calling them out for the way that they would make an appearance of a binding word, a statement, or an agreement, but the actual wording of the oath contained an escape, and the speaker could not be held to what he said. It was used as a means of falsehoods. It's similar to us, if you think of it this way, it's similar to us as if we crossed our fingers. We promised something and said, we had our fingers crossed. doesn't matter. 
That's exactly what was going on. They would swear by something they didn't deem sacred enough, something that wasn't binding enough, and they could it would just use the term hoodwink the next guy and swear, but this is not binding enough, this is not great enough, and this is blaspheming the Lord's name. They would swear by the temple or the gold of the temple, but not the temple itself, as they had all these rules. And what, what Christ says at that time, what James says here is, let your yes be yes and your no, no. He's not condemning oaths of any kind. In Scripture, we see God make oaths. In Scripture, we see faithful men use oaths. And it is appropriate at times, as our catechism would say, to use oaths where necessity requires it. What he's condemning here is this flippant usage of this. And using oaths in such a way to actually undermine the integrity of your own heart. And so you're not proving faithful. And he's saying, be so faithful that all one needs from you is your yes or your no. And you'll stand by that. Now that relates to verses 1 through 11. Because we are living in light of Christ's presence. We live in integrity, and our yes matters, and our no matters, and we endure, and we are established in our heart, and we will stand firm, we will bear that weight, and we won't renege on our word. Our word stands. It's not used as a falsehood, it's used as truth. Sinclair Ferguson, I want to read a quote from him that sort of explains this well. He says, you see, this way of speaking exemplifies the very double-mindedness James so thoroughly condemns. Because what our oaths are keeping our word shows is that we are single-mindedly Christ's. Our yes meaning yes and no meaning no shows that the gospel means something to us because we are unreservedly Christ's. Unreservedly Christ's. You can't live out this passage without being unreservedly Christ. You can't be living in the knowledge that Christ died to be our Savior and living in His presence, looking forward to His return, unless you are unreservedly Christ. This is how you'll be steadfast in our world and not be condemned. That's what Ferguson says. Unreservedly Christ. And now you see how this fits. If this was such a problem for the Jews, if it was such a problem in the day, James is addressing it here and he's saying... You are to be unreservedly Christ's in your patience and enduring the suffering when you follow the examples of the prophets and how you keep your word. Unreservedly Christ, not wavering. James is essentially saying, are you unreservedly Christ down to your patience in these last days? The words that you say. For the purpose of James is living for Jesus. And that living for Jesus gives the patient endurance to await his coming. It helps us to remain steadfast, and our yes will be yes, our no will be no. We use a very technical term, what he's talking about, it's, it's stickability. Stickability. We stick to Christ. We don't, we're not pulled away. Sort of like those... You know, they put those price tags on things, and you think, why did they do that? You start pulling it off, and then well, all that happens is you, you, you pull the top little layer off, and, and there's just so much there, it's just stuck. And you think, well, that, that price tag, it's there forever now. That's, that's what we are to Christ. Unreservedly His. Clinging to Him. In that, 
you see the mercy of the Lord. By clinging to him, you will endure. By holding to him, your trials will pass. By sticking to him, the day will come when you will enter eternity and all these trials will be seen as a blessing. Be patient, be steadfast, stick to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord God in heaven, we see a great call in these verses, a high standard to keep, but we pray that we would indeed follow it, that we would grow in our patient endurance, that we would even be as the prophets, who we count as blessed, we count as worthy, and we see what they have done and we gain strength. We pray that in all of it, it would end with the example of Christ, that we would follow him, that we would look to him, the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and we pray that we would be unreservedly Christ's, that we would stick to you, not in our own power, not in our abilities to cling, but we ask you to preserve us in faith, to be patient, to be men and women of our word,